The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's good to see you again. It's our pleasure to be back tonight. Today we're going to talk about illness and the heavenly messenger. Um, how was the, the homework for you guys? Uh, what are the suggested uh, activities for this past week? It was to imagine that you had one of the common illnesses that afflict uh, us. Uh, cancer, uh, heart attack, uh, dementia. Uh, there were several others. Stroke. Um, and kind of to imagine for a day um, how that would uh, how that would be for you. And I wondered, um, did anybody do that? Did anybody actually do that? Good. Um, what, what was it like? Um, it allowed me to reflect upon how I would feel in terms of what parts of my body or mind would be affected by each one of these. It was kind of scary, actually. Could you, could you say more about that? What? Um, well, I guess um, I've known people who have had each one of these illnesses, and one of them actually very close to home recently. Um, there's just there's just a deep fear there, and one of the reasons I'm taking this uh, study is to try and use my meditation and some of the other skills to tamp down some of those fears, and just to think about it in this context. Thank you. Did anybody else have anything similar to that? Or different? Yes. Yes, yeah, so really what I did was realize that I had, um, with one person or another, been through each of these, just as she said. And, and it struck me that, that these different diseases have uh, really different challenges. Um, and we could talk about that for a while, but I see cancer as more of a... Probably not something that will kill you immediately, but that, so you're, you have a mental challenge in facing it and facing the progression of it. Whereas strokes and heart attacks often happen suddenly, and then you're left with the uh, dealing with the changes those have brought. And uh, I know a, 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 a very good a, a description of one of those is by this fellow Ram Das who uh, suffered a stroke and who then describes uh, quite clearly the kind of uh, challenges he had in coming back. Uh, pneumonia is a struggle for breath. That's what my wife died of after cancer, or during cancer. And as a child, I had asthma and struggled for breath uh, seriously. Um, mm -hmm. So I had some feeling for that. And the dementia, Alzheimer's, I have a friend who's, who has that. So I've watched that over the years. So this may not be exactly what you hoped I would do, but I uh, tried to get into each of them. I hope that you did exactly that you did. 
um, it sounds like you were very genuinely involved in the exercise and that it touched you. Yes, it did. Other uh, people? I was with my mother the night before she died, and that came back to me very, very clearly. And I spent the entire night with her. Um, and she was a very strong woman, and she kept getting out of bed and, you know, insisting that she could go to the bathroom by herself and so on. And um, that came back very clearly to me because it was a um, very important experience with her to see her die. And uh, I also have, well, she died of, of a cerebral hemorrhage. And I have uh, high blood pressure myself. And I'm a... I've been under medication for it for many years, and um, so that is the first thing that comes to me is seeing her dying and seeing her struggling, and to the very end, she she was everything she always was in life to be able to be independent, and because she was such a fabulous mother, very strong. And, and so when I get kind of hot and bothered and, and I can feel my blood pressure going up, I think about her and I try to temper my temper. <laughs> temper my temper. The, the well-tempered clavier. <laughs> Um, thank you. Um, next slide. Now, these are radically new suggestions about preventing illness. I'm sure these come as a surprise to you that um, you should eat. Um, actually, I have some dietary suggestions. Fin, uh, for those who are not uh, vegetarians, uh, fins and feathers are fine. Forget about four-footed food. Fins and feathers are fine. Forget about four-footed food, i.e. the fat content of uh, land animals uh, it is not so good for you. Um, An all-beige meal is bad for you. Yes. All one color. White, tan, you know just the, the bread and the pasta and the potato. So you need a variety of foods. Um, exercise. Uh, this is not everybody's training for the Ironman. Uh, bought your tickets to uh, Hawaii and you're going to do that whenever it is. Um, this is walking. And it can be as little as a half hour a day, uh, seven days a week, which is not a struggle. Uh, and that provides um, quite a few of the health benefits. Um, uh, seven or eight. <laughs> um, and everybody knows that they have to manage stress. 
Um, that's a wonderful aspiration. You could lead an exemplary virtuous life and that does not prevent illness. And I think that um, people feel somehow that their efforts have failed them if they get ill. Um, I, look, I mean, see, has anybody had a serious illness? Has anybody had uh, a not so serious illness? Is anybody here bulletproof? So we've all had something or other, uh, some uh, that are more recognizable. Do you remember if you've had an illness that uh, required being, quote, diagnosed, what was that experience like? Can you recall back? Um, yes. Yes, please. Um, <clears throat> about uh, a little over 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, when the doctor told me the news, uh, it was just this blinding, white, hot fear. It's like nothing I've ever experienced before. Um, and I had a small child at the time. And my very first thought was, who's going to raise her when I'm gone? <coughs> That, that is a actually pretty common uh, for people. Uh, I'm an oncologist, and people will date their lives um, BC and AC, before cancer and after cancer, and they have indelibly that moment. And I was going to say, the doctor who gave me the news said, I'm going to give you a lot of information today, and you're only going to remember two things. The first is your diagnosis, and the second is that this is not a death sentence. And that's absolutely right. Um, I always like smart doctors. Uh, there is a common experience of illness, however, whether it be... Could you slide? And um, these issues really come up with if you've got the flu or if you've had a heart attack or even uh, a, a diagnosis of something that is not immediately symptomatic. Uh, we wonder uh, the cause, wonder whether we did something wrong. Um, has anybody been inconvenienced by an illness? <laughs> Darn! I, you know, I was really expecting to go to that Giants game, and this uh, heart attack is just... Uh, and, it, you know, I had season tickets, too. Uh, and it, it, it goes beyond uh, things like that. But the illness interrupts our expectations and our belief that we can uh, predict what's going to happen next. Uh, how many people here are just, excuse the expression, dying to be dependent? Because they just cannot think of any more joyful experience than relying on other people for your bodily needs. I think that is one of the most common things that people uh, big time don't like. And we'll, we'll look at uh, what, at the bottom line, is really the bottom line for each of these. 
this becomes an exercise in examining what specifically are you attached to? Are you attached, for example, to the image that is in our culture of being a self-sufficient, independent person? Um, people talk about being autonomous. There are two definitions for the word autonomous. One is uh, independent, meaning uh, that they do for themselves. The other one, and this is true in Asian and Mediterranean countries, isolation. The people who are autonomous can become isolated. And there is this balance between those. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we knew what was going to happen next? If we got, you know, you get a TV guide and so you can see what's going to be on the channel next? Um, we don't have a TV guide uh, for our lives. Okay, um, what is a wise patient? First of all, pa being a patient is a, is a role. Uh, it's, it's not, I hope, not a full-time job. Uh, and please don't lose your amateur standing. Uh, but this is an opportunity to strengthen your ability to investigate your responses to these sensations whether they be physical sensations, psych um, emotional, or philosophical. Because each time you have even just... All these slides are going to be on the, the uh, website. Uh, so you can take your notes or you can just go to the website. Uh, we have the opportunity to use an illness. Unfortunately, years ago, there were books written about somebody took the, this cancer is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I learned da-da, da-da, da-da. Well, no, it sucks. But why waste a perfectly good stroke? Or pneumonia? Or high blood pressure? Why waste that? Um, if somebody dumps a truckload of um, cow manure, What are you going to do but use it for fertilizer and grow something? How many people assume that the doctor is going to have all the time in the world to be with you in the visit? Not, not likely. Um, and by the way, doctors really do want to be able to be with you. But the way that the medical system, which is severely dysfunctional, works is that they do not allot enough time. Um, the difference between want and need, at the most basic level, what do you need? Oxygen? Um, some form of energy? Nutrition? Water? A lot of the other things that we want, we'd like to be understood, we'd like to be cared for, like to have a good day. But discriminating in your own lives between what I want and what I really need becomes uh, a useful skill to develop, particularly with illness.
Um, anybody use the internet to get information about stuff? Uh, there's a data processing uh, term, GIGO. Does anybody know what GIGO means? Garbage in, garbage out. And so please, please, please look at the quality of the information. We live now in a fact-free political universe. So, uh, uh, by the way, I've written um, the medical guide to illness, and it includes websites specifically for uh, validated sources of information. So, um, verify the accuracy. And you, you, it is possible to do that. Plain Tree Health Library is available in most communities. P-L-A-N-E-T-R-E-E, -E -E, Plain Tree. Plain tree. Uh, it, this this uh, guide that uh, Dr. Bill wrote will be, is on our website or will be up on the website, so you'll be able to take a look at that. Had one for aging and then illness, and then I'll have another one up. And I understand that um, we will also have a spiritual guide to um, illness and um, so forth. There's a book uh, written by a geriatric social worker called Counting on Kindness. She researched in uh, nursing homes the experiences of patients and the experience of the caregivers and found that there were certain traits for the patients that predicted much better care. What do you think those traits were? The patients reached out to the caregivers with kindness and attention and love and were interested in their families Precisely. They talk about pay attention. You are uh, investing in ten attention when you witness another person. Witness is to affirm that person is real and that their experience is real. Yes? Uh, let's use the microphone. In the case of something like dementia, I mean, I, I am have power of attorney for a friend who has dementia, and I, you know, this idea of retaining um, information about the caregiver and asking about their family is impossible for her. Um, and oh, she's a real, she's been a very, a real um, teacher to me in all this. She would very much just like to get out. You know, she's now, we both had a birthday last week, and she's now 89, and can't believe that she's, how did I get here? But she just wants to get out, and of course there's nothing, no way out. But I realized I would not, I myself would not want to be in her situation, living as she is, so I don't know. <laughs> But anyway, but this is just I'm getting back to this. It is so possible how does someone, always to um, who does, is not um, volitional completely uh, do this. Uh, or you're, mentally, you're, yeah. Um, I mean, well, having yeah. the will yeah. and the capacity. Yeah. Um, you're her surrogate. 
Yes, I'm her um, responsible party. Yeah. So um, you can have someone as a surrogate providing this witnessing function. Uh, when you have visitors, uh, if a person who is incapacitated, let's say uh, paralyzed from a stroke or, or with dementia, mm -hmm. then the visitors can be just as uh, identified as providing that kindness mm -hmm. to the overwork, underpaid, stressed individuals who are doing yeah. literally a dirty job. Yeah, that's true. So um, be nice to them. They mm -hmm. work for it. Mm -hmm. um, how do you navigate the medical system? Who's the most important person in a doctor's office? The patient. No. It's not you. It's the person who answers the phone. That person who answers the phone determines whether you will get to see the doctor at that time or sometime later or maybe just not at all. So be nice to them. They're working hard. And that goes true for the doctors and the lab techs and so forth. That same capacity to be kind um, and generous. I mean, when you cultivate that, that's how you live, which is a, a very pleasant way of living. Um, doctors eat information. They read faster than they listen. Present the questions that you have. If you're going to a scheduled visit, think about what you want to do for that visit. Write down your um, issues. And if you have some kind of illness that generates data, so Lolly, for example, you could measure your blood pressure and bring in uh, a list of your blood pressures that, that you take at home or at the drugstore or whatever. And so by bringing that to the doctor, and perhaps even ahead of the visit, so that doctor has a, has a, a preview of how they can best help you. Um, sometimes doctors like them email, sometimes faxed. But find out from the most important person in the office, the one who answers the phone, what works best. Um, did anybody take, uh, take a recorder to a doctor's office? Yeah. Well, I, I know that you do, Adelaide. <laughs> um, and uh, you know you're allowed to do that? Microphone. Uh, when I was diagnosed, this was before iPhones, so you know you could just record then. So I brought a friend with me for a lot of my visits to write everything down because I want to be able to listen. And you can't really do both at the same time. And your friend heard something different than what would have been heard uh, on a recorder. And you do a service if after listening as best you could, you asked the, your caregiver, and by the way, my daughter's an, uh, a nurse practitioner, so, and she does, uh, for primary care, a fabulous job. She's functioning at second year resident, resident level at least, but, you know, runs in the family. Uh, so, ask, this is what I heard. Is this what you said? What do you think the hit rate is on what you heard and what it was said? 
Um, it's it not double digit. Um, how many people look at their role as a team member in health? So that you are a partner because your goal is the same as that of the provider. So if you approach it that way, you know, you don't fight with your teammates. You don't carry a chip on your shoulder. And letting your provider know that you want to make their job as easy as possible while they're doing the best job for you. It will shock them to know that you care about how hard or easy it is. And after they finish, what did you say? Um, they will probably, well, well you know, here's, here's, here's what you could do. And all of these lead to better care. So be a smart patient. Um, how else, um, how are we doing on time? Um, we will have lots of time for um, uh, talking about your own experiences. Uh, Aya, do you have? I think the next one's Steve's. Yes, Steve? Oh, here we go. No, but it's possible for you to move your seat closer. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, we have low technology solutions to many problems. <laughs> Is that easier for you? Or would you like it? Could somebody bring a chair over closer? But speaking up, I am so proud of you for doing that. That is a perfect example of a person just very easily getting what they need. It doesn't take rocket science. Steve? So I've been asked to give a few words about um, being a caregiver or continuous caregiver to um, somebody. Many of you may remember my wife who was actively involved at IMC um, and she had a chronic illness. She was also a nurse practitioner. Um, another thing to add, Bill, which they loved Cheryl when she went to the doctor is she had a list of all the medications and records and everything else and when she went in, there was a whole binder when she was into the hospital. As soon as she went to the emergency room, they knew exactly what she was on and so that's a good idea to have um, that information too. But when taking care of a loved one, like a loved one has surgery, either for cancer or heart surgery or something like that, it's it's a very emotional thing for the person taking care of them or the loved one to see your loved one hooked up to a machine with a bunch of stuff, breathing, like a very emotional thing. So there, there's two parts to taking care of something. you got to remember you're under a lot of stress because it's a very emotional thing seeing a loved one. Um, suffering and, and going through that. And this is also the <coughs> amount of time you're putting in, um, and especially if, if somebody is um, has a chronic illness, or like my sister who's diabetic, I know my brother-in-law, you know, he'd always be on guard to know when my sister's uh, insulin level went too low, he knows she started talking funny, 
I know when my sister moved out here, um, I came home from work and the paramedics were there and Cheryl realized my sister was talking funny and immediately called up. So it, it's like having, having a young child, you have to constantly watch and be alert that they don't, don't get into trouble. The other important thing, you know, this is going to be quite taxing on you, and some people like to be really heroic and just take care of a person. You've got to look at for your needs and how much you can give, and you need, sometimes you need time for yourself, and you've got to tell people to help out. Um, another thing is, you may remember back in 2002, my wife had a cardiac arrest on a retreat up in Oregon, oh, actually Washington. And uh, when she came back, people from IMC were coming over, cooking meals for us, doing this, doing that. And so it really um, helped out a lot. I also remember my, when my father was ill, he was like in the hospital for a year before he died. And my mother would just say, you know, I just have to pull back and not go into the hospital tomorrow. I need a rest to recharge your batteries. Because if you don't and you wear down and you get sick, you're no use to anybody. So you really got to learn, learn, know your limits. So all of this is very important um, practical information and helpful in ways of navigating through illness. But in this course, we also want to talk about the spiritual dimension and what is that spiritual message from illness that we can make use of in developing the mind, developing the heart. You know, what is the purpose of um, illness as a heavenly messenger? So the, the Buddha also became ill. He had illness, he had pain, he, he um, had injury. Um, he had chronic pain when he was older. And we've, he had a doctor, and he took medicine, and he did the things that were useful to help the body. But he was not like us in the same way that he was that he related to these experiences. He did not have mental suffering that came along that usually comes along with illness for most of us. So I know for myself when something happens to the body, the first reaction is really seeing it as a problem that I want to fix. Or maybe a fear arises uh, that, you know, what does this mean? Is this serious? Is this going to cause some kind of debilitation? Yes, you know, what, what is really um, the, what are the ramifications of this? So this is our, you might say, common way of thinking about illness and, and relating to it. But the heavenly message is to really see as, as Bill was indicating, seeing this as an opportunity to really encourage our practice and develop our um, strength in practice. <coughs> so when we notice that there's mental suffering surrounding these physical experiences, we can, use, we can apply the practice to be able to work with that. Where am I holding this in a way that I'm trying to get rid of it? It's a funny balance, isn't it? Where you do what 
is useful in order to help the body heal the body, give it the resources and the support that it needs, and then let go. And I don't know if you've noticed, like in in any endeavor in your life, if there's some wholesome desire to do something good, to develop the mind, to become more equanimous, to become more loving, or to have something occur that's going to be beneficial, there is desire there. The Buddha said we have to have wholesome desire. We can't just let go of all desire. There was a there was a wanderer of another group that came to the Buddha one day and he said, you have to let go of all desire. You can't use desire to let go of desire. It'll never work. There's no end to it. <laughs> Sounds logical. But the Buddha said, look, just for you to come here today to talk to me, you had to have desire. And he pointed out that desire is one of the things that we we need to have, but it needs to be of the kind for some something wholesome, something beneficial, something that's going to help us develop or develop or or bring some good result about. So this desire to support the body is useful, but then in whatever endeavor we have, if we are clinging to a particular outcome or goal, you know how detrimental or um, how unproductive that can be. Whereas if we let go, things come in that we may never have, have anticipated, we couldn't have orchestrated. So using illness in this way of seeing it as this opportunity to sort through what's going on with the mind, what's going on with the heart, and recognizing that when anger, fear, grief, distress arise, to be able to look at that with mindfulness and bring a a real self-compassion and kindness to it. If we have that thought of, well, I should be beyond this, I've been practicing for so many years, I shouldn't feel this way. It's kind of (laughs) harsh. The next step perhaps can be, you know, we just have to be with this the way it is. Be with this mind as it is. None of us can predict how we're going to react when something changes. And none of us can predict when those changes are going to happen. So are you suggesting that we use mindfulness then as kind of uh, an MRI of our um, perceptions and locating those areas where we're constricted? And if we can deconstrict them by deconstructing them, I guess, um, then you open a space into which um the unexpected and um, the blessing um, opportunities can uh, take root there. The Buddha wanted us to approach every example, every instance of suffering with the four noble truths. And the first noble truth is to be present with this 
suffering, acknowledging that suffering is there. And it's dukkha. Suffering is not a full uh, representation of that Pali word. So this, this discomfort, this unsatisfactoriness, this wanting to push something away, whenever that happens, then the first noble truth is the first step of application. Being present with it, with mindfulness, clear comprehension, with, with an understanding of what this is, a kind of stepping back from this, what we see as a problem filling the entire screen of our experience, stepping back and really taking in that reality that there's space around it, no matter how huge it seems. So it's useful to start with small things. We can start with the pain in the knee, you know, the change in our vision, anything that might bring some kind of level of stress or concern, noticing that stress and concern and, and really looking at what is the root of this. And you can follow your way through the four noble truths in the practice. Mindfulness is a huge part, but it's not the only part. Again, bringing in the Brahma-viharas, the kindness, the compassion, equanimity. So we have this opportunity, and when we practice with instances as we go through normal, what we might think of as normal life, with the normal range of discomfort in our life, then we build our, our spiritual muscle so that we're prepared and more likely to be able to take that step back onto solid ground of the Dhamma when there's something bigger that happens. So, mindfulness is part of it. Mindfulness, as it's described in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha was very specific in his instructions. Mindfulness of feeling, as well as mindfulness of the body. Our tendency is to want to pull away from the painful and want to grab on to the pleasurable, as you well know. And when we're in pain or we have some symptom or some reaction in the body, then we automatically or unconsciously often are seeking some pleasant or pleasurable substitute. And it's the flip side of the same problem of wanting or wanting to get rid of. It's when we step back and we, we, we really stay present with that experience rather than being caught up in that experience that we start to understand better the true nature of what's happening in the body and in the mind. And when we, when we start to see that this situation is constantly changing, there's nothing firm or dependable about it. And we start to recognize, well, this, this can't be mine or me. It can't be defining me. I don't own this. 
I don't have control of this. This is something I can observe and be present with and let go of identity with. One, one of the things I know that was helpful to I have a chronic pain syndrome from uh, a lot of back issues. And um, for me to be able to recognize it is the pain, not mine, it is the pain, it is the human condition pain. And then, and I don't know how this happened, I added another E to the word thee. And I could greet this noxious experience with respect. And so I did not lose the fact that school's in session is teaching and that illnesses are uh, teachers. Microphone. I'd just like to share something about illness as teacher, and it um, applies to what we said earlier, but I think it's germane for this also. <clears throat> for many years, I uh, struggled and still struggle with um, self-importance and arrogance. And I hope you have kindness with you, to yourself around it. And I hope you recognize there are a couple other people in the room who have the same problem. <laughs> well, yes and yes. Um, and a couple years ago, um, I broke my femur and spent two weeks in rehab. And um, I realized after that experience of being there for two weeks... Uh, helpless in pain and cared for at every level, I realized that that experience did more to alleviate the uh, arrogance and self-importance than all the, the therapy and the retreats <laughs> and all the other things I did. Yeah. And all I had to do was be present and experience what was there for me. Because it's pretty hard to be self-important and arrogant when you're sitting on a bedpan. That's beautiful. Thank you. Isn't all of aren't all of these aging, sickness, and death? They're great levelers, aren't they? All the things we think we are begin to become kind of become kind of transparent or something that it it fades. My mother is 90, and she often says, we really are all on the same boat. And sometimes I say, well, I think there's one big distinction, and it's around virtue. How we live our life, the choices we make, this does make a difference. Whether we are keeping precepts, whether we are kind, it does make a difference. It sets the course of uh, the trajectory of our consciousness. And those are the things we have control over, what we say, what we do, and even what we think, the thoughts that we put energy into. That's our responsibility. And then when we, when we talk about being kind, that's a choice that we can make, to realize that that's a choice even when we're in pain, even when we're irritable, even when we're upset. 
we can make that choice. And that we're not going to make that choice because we want something back from this person, this secretary, this receptionist, this caregiver, because that ruins it. But that we make that choice because that's who we want to become or that's who we are becoming, a kind person. That kindness ripples out through whatever the, the cascade is of this consciousness that right now is flowing through this body and on to some other existence later. Are you, are you going to do the meditation? We want to remember that each of these experiences is an opportunity to amp up the urgency to practice. So the Buddha said, there's a, there's a kind of person who gets this little illness and says, okay, I'm a little bit ill, I can't practice, I'm going to go take a nap. And there's another kind of person who gets a little illness and says, wow, I better practice because you never know when this is going to get worse. So let's consider that it's through the practice of serenity meditation to give us a basis of calm that allows us to then begin to realize and see the way things actually are, the impermanence, that this is not self, that this is all falling apart and that's its nature. There's nothing to be alarmed about. And to then glimpse or gain that experience that that knowledge actually brings peace. Ultimately, an unshakable peace. It's a way of going way beyond coping. So these are the practices we've talked about each week. And just glance over them again. Every one of them has its part in helping us develop on the path and to develop in our ability to go beyond coping with these life experiences. A comment that my Pilates teacher once made uh, when somebody said, practice makes perfect, he shook his head, no. Perfect practice makes perfect. So, um, if you really get it, that this produces the results that make your life beyond what it is now into something that you may never even have considered possible. It's worth doing these practices as just part of the breath and the walking and the being with others. These work. I trust doing these. And you could not have stayed in robes for as long as you have if you did not also have the trust that this does work. Trust, faith, confidence. And we build it through our experience of our practice. And our experience of being with living beings who have walked the path and realized these things you see a brightness in them, a resilience, an ability to accept, an ability to 
rise above. So let's do a little, oh, please go ahead. Uh, microphone in the back, please. If you could pass that back. Yeah. It's off. Um, I have a, um, a bit of a problem with uh, letting go of people because I'm not sure, you know, I've worked on trying to be a loving person forever and really I can't help but just loving my sons, you know. And I mean, it's just there. And I can... I can be okay with considering my death and plan, do all that kind of stuff. But as soon as I even get a glimpse of one of them dying, I totally lose it. And I don't, okay, am I, am I attached or am I deeply loving? What is happening there? I, you know, I don't know how to work with that. So the Buddha said, if you have one love, you have one suffering. If you have two loves, you have two sufferings. If you have three... So... That's not birth control recommendation. No. There's, so, what you're talking about from my experience as a mother and a grandmother and a practitioner and a Buddhist nun is the place where the rubber really meets the road. And it, through the practice of letting go of each of these things we come to and can let go of. And what are you letting go of? You're not letting go of the people. You're letting go of the attachment to people. You're letting go, you're letting go of your self-interest. There's a shift that happens in the practice where the love isn't personal anymore. The love is much stronger, deeper, and ubiquitous. And when we love those people in our life from that place, we're much more available to them. They have freedom. We can give to them in a way that we can't otherwise. It actually increases our ability to love. But there's a full understanding that they have their own process, their own lives. We don't know where they go from here, where they've come from before this, what their actual path is. To be able to let go of whatever happens to them, to be able to reside in a place of equanimity as we support them towards the good and let go of whatever outcome is there. When we have fear around what will happen to them, that's an indication of suffering. That suffering is around attachment. And it, can, it we can be in relationship in a way that we have a responsibility that we fulfill by being the loving mother, the loving grandmother, but not the, you're somehow belonging or part of me. You're somehow mine. Does that make sense? You know, it makes a lot of sense, but, you know, I've worked a lot on, on letting go of my role as a mother and a grandmother and all that. Um, and I think I've done a pretty good job. So I don't know what the attachment is because I don't expect anything from them, you know, and I, I acknowledge 
the lives that they're living and mm-hmm. their independence, all of that. So I'm not sure, you know, is it part of this an intellectual investigation? Or this is more about realization. This is more about insight. So you re- you you investigate with intention, sure. You keep looking at all the places where you're suffering, what it is that we put our energy into and what kind of suffering it gets produced. Keep looking at how things are impermanent and falling apart. And at some point, the insight can come where there's a shift inside. It can be surprising. But it will come. If you keep doing the practice, it will come. When you're saying the practice, can you describe that whole, a little more? The whole Noble Eightfold Path. Okay. The whole of okay. the Buddhist teaching. Okay. I, I will speak as a lay person. The closest I come to madness is when I recognize I cannot prevent the suffering of the people I love. Yeah, yeah, that's the big one. That's really a big one. And there are moments when it is as if I condense and I become more and more concentrated as a result of my meditation practice. And it is almost like going through this invisible membrane. And on the other side of it is no less love for them as my children than my wife and my grandchildren. But in addition to that is the spaciousness of simply the property of being love. So it goes from the specific and expands into something larger. This is, I've been practicing over 40 years, both medicine and and meditation. And this is only recently coming to me in a real way. I've always entertained the idea that it might be. And I can tell you from my own experience, yes, you can trust these practices beyond anything that you hope or expect or think possible. It happens. And there's no diminution of that one-to-one, this is flesh of my flesh kind of love. It changes, though. It shifts. It is all of our species then become included in that. And beyond our species. Well, living beings. For you, but I'm working (laughs) from the bottom up. So someone once asked, well, then, what, what motivates you to do things? You know, who takes the dog for a walk? Who drives the kids to school? If you get to that place where there's this incredible equanimity and, and the answer is kindness. The answer is compassion. When your compassion is the same for the suffering of your grandchild as it is for the suffering of anyone else's grandchild, you've made some progress. And this is a really, this is a really valuable arena of practice. 
and and things are different then, but they're better. And you'll also stand as an example to those living beings coming up and being able to see how someone can live in a way that's much more stable, happy, even though these heavenly messengers keep knocking on the door. It's okay. There's nothing wrong. Thank you. So we're going to do a little practice. It's going to be brief, and it's also a practice you're probably used to, but we'll take a few minutes to just become still and present in the body. Sometimes the simplest of meditations are the most powerful. Sometimes what we do in a few minutes can be extraordinarily meaningful. So take a few long breaths and really settle into this body sitting here. And bringing an attitude of kindness and gratitude that we have this body at this point in time. Very useful vehicle. The Buddha said everything we need to know we can learn in this fathom-long body, this body. So being with this body as a body indicates that shift from feeling that this is our body to observing, watching. And right now, in this present moment, we may have some kind of discomfort in the body, an ache here, a tightness there, some tiredness around the eyes. And we can be present with that experience of discomfort. Take an interest in it. This feeling is just a feeling. Or if there's no discomfort in the body at all, then notice that there may be pleasant feeling, even neutral feeling, neither pleasant nor unpleasant can be observed. This is the way it is. as we choose an area or a point to bring attention to being there, 
being aware of any kind of wish to get rid of or to hold on to. can use awareness of our breathing as a stabilizer, something that grounds us. We have a strong experience, a strong pain or a strongly pleasurable experience, we can stay with it for some time and notice that it changes. None of it is constant. There's some kind of specific symptom in the body that might trigger worry or fear. You can be present with that worry, that fear. Imagine putting our arm around it, giving it some comfort. I see you there. I know you. It's okay. This is the way it is. The constant changing, the falling apart. This is nature. There is no reason here to be unhappy.
Now we'll have our opportunity to break into our small groups and discuss what's been coming up for us. And we've each time talked about these ground rules for our interactions. Could you tell me what they are? Confidentiality, yes. No enlightening of others. No enlightenment rule. Please become enlightened. <laughs> Another one? Yes. Yes, be mindful of the time so that we have roughly equal amounts to speak and share. And we also are asking that showing up, showing up physically and showing up mentally and with our presence. Very good. So as we go to our small groups, a couple of things from the homework that you might recall As we talked about in the beginning, this experience of exploring the reflection on what it would be like to live with a common serious illness. And again, the practice being observing that this body, like the bodies we've seen, can experience this. And standing at the edge of that experience, watching not going down into it and being consumed by it. This is the ongoing practice with all of our emotional and mental experience. Being present with, not a wash in. And so really looking at how that process works, if you had uh, something come up around that. And then another option or possibility is really looking at letting go, letting go of rules, letting go of Whatever it is we think is ours. <laughs> so go ahead. And we'll uh, give you kind of a two-minute warning when it's time to come back. We'd like to share how, how is it going. Yes. Where are we at? The microphone? Okay. I don't think um, Could you kindly explain the distinction between letting go versus resignation and kind of nihilism? That's a difficult distinction well, for One thing that comes up for me right away is the difference in how they feel, even saying those words. So that kind of nihilism or resignation has a has a pushing away or a giving up kind of feeling to it. Maybe some resentment. It's so you, there's definitely an aversion there, whereas letting go is a is a fully free relief. Um, peace comes with it. So again it just requires being present with what's underlying that movement to really see where it's rooted. There's a difference in the definition between giving up and surrendering. To surrender means to stop fighting. 
So resignation um, is giving up in, in, in a, a parallel construction. So you can stop fighting something, but it is a, a decision of wisdom rather than submission. Could we have the microphone? Oh, sorry. Thank you. The word decision seems important there. Say more. Well, letting go seems to me to be a personal decision, whereas, what was the other? Resignation. Resignation uh, feels like I don't have any control over this, you know, so... Or at least not realizing that we do have choice. Yeah, right. It's volitional anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't decide to be resigned. No, but we have the opportunity to observe that that leaning towards resignation and be mindful about it and work with what's underneath it. So there is there is volition there. Like if you know, sometimes if we don't make a conscious choice, the choice gets made anyway. Yeah. Okay, so just understanding. It's like when I first heard um, Ajahn Jayasaro talk about how anger is volitional. And he said, uh, anger is volitional. Uh huh. And I thought, whoa, the anger just comes up. It's not something I'm choosing to have. But then he said, there is this moment when you decide to go with it. Mm-hmm. And when that resignation, yeah. when that when that feeling comes up, we have the opportunity to go with it or to look at it. Absolutely. So that's where yeah. the volition comes. Okay. And yeah. making yeah. that a practice helps us to see, okay, I have a choice here. I have a choice when despair arises. That's a good mantra. Yeah, thank you. That's I good. have a choice. Yeah. We forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other folks? Steve wants to speak. As I said this yesterday, but you should know in the chant we do, I am the owner of my actions, the head of my actions, is basically what you're saying, I have a choice, and that the choices is going to affect you now and also in the future. So make wise choices. Part of a choice is recognizing one there are these options and also recognizing that there are options beyond your field of vision. So there was a, uh, Vaclav Havel once said that hope is the ability to say no to what is directly in front of you because that is not all there is. And resignation is not all there is. And the choices that we believe we have may be greater. And I think that we can trust the insight. I guess that's Vipassana is the Pali word, isn't it? For insight? We can trust the process. (laughs) This is not a debate. I'll just use English. Um, 
the process of really examining what is there and knowing that there are choices. So in the love for a, a child or a spouse, we have choices that, that um, are not always obvious. And when we have an illness, and it just, you know, it's just like, I'm giving up. Uh, there's a choice point of saying, no, I will not submit to this. I will wait it out because it will change. All things will change, so my job is to outlast it. Outlast whatever particular um, thought or mood or belief uh, is obscuring what our options and our choices are. And there's no formula for that. It's just simply what you can allow yourself to imagine. So where does acceptance come into this? When you can't do anything more. Or accepting what's happening in the moment as it's happening in the moment. Okay, I'm, if there's anger, if there's sadness, if there's even guilt or blame, it's like, okay, this is what's there. I accept that this is what's there at the moment. There's that part of acceptance. And then there's the doing what you can and then letting go. That's an acceptance. And it's tricky to know when we've done all that we can do. Like when I look at what the stories about the Buddha and how he dealt with illness and pain and, and injury, he was patiently enduring, strong feeling, and then turning his attention to the practice. So is that what you're at? So, so that's where the acceptance comes in. Okay, I've done what I can do. It's like the serenity prayer. You know, the courage to change what I can change and the willingness to accept what I can't change and then that wisdom part. How do you know the difference? I would extend the meaning of the word acceptance to, okay, this is real. I am suffering. Okay, I have tried this and it did not get the result I wanted. Instead of throwing your head against the wall again and again, saying, okay, don't like it, but this is so, now what? Because that, we, that mantra, we have choice, I have a choice. And the choice may be to go back to the wisdom traditions, go back to the teachings, to seek out um, the wisdom of someone else whom we trust. So we, acceptance is not given up. If we are using everything that comes along in our life as part of the practice, we're really reflecting deeply on where greed, hatred, and delusion are operating in our system. 
we develop the wisdom over time, over practice, that helps us see reality as it is. So that when something comes up, we can already accept that that's the nature of things. Does that answer your question? It seems like there's a, a, something underneath it. There's a lot underneath it. Um, so one of the most difficult things in my life was when my wife was dying of cancer and then pneumonia. She was a fighter. She wasn't a Buddhist. She wasn't a, a boxer. She, she was strong, strong-willed. And she didn't give up. And we never said goodbye. Because I didn't want to undermine her single-minded confidence that she was going to beat this. And then in a grief group following that, there was another person, I told that story, and there was another person in the same group of ten people, same deal, same thing. Same loss of closeness at the end because the, the ill one was going to beat it. Would you have said that she was in denial? I don't know. I don't know, but I wasn't willing the to The person who is um, agonal, meaning that their last breath, and says, I'm not dying, that's denial. Yeah. You can love that person and express your love. Yeah, what I'm, without... describing, I'm describing what happened uh, over a period of uh, months. And then at the end, she got pneumonia and like that. Yeah. But um, so there wasn't time at the very end to uh, come face to face with uh, the failure of uh, the failure of agreement of what is happening yeah. is the failure. Yeah. And sometimes you don't get agreement. Sometimes all you have is the compassionate connection with that person and allowing that their facts, though not shared by many people, is what allows them to continue being who they are. Yeah, I would like you to consider, first of all, acknowledging your selflessness in trying to support her in her process. I think that that's huge. And also to recognize that the connection with one another is much bigger than the spoken word or even the gesture. And it goes beyond death. So it's, we can have in our mind, you know, the way it should go, but how often does it really go that way? Thank you. Yes, Lally. In our group, we came to uh, talking about assisted suicide, uh, choosing our death, etc. And I was wondering if we could open that discussion in this group. Um, I actually lectured, uh, by the way, the California law is called uh, End of Life Options Act. And it is not assisted suicide. It may be of physician-assisted dying, 
suicide is a legal definition that is excluded in the law. We do not have the time in this course to go over that. If there is a desire, however, I will give a talk on that. I've, I've lectured to lay and professional audiences on this topic. It is so far more complex than you can even grasp. Um, and in terms of does it allow you to be in control? Uh, it promotes the illusion thereof. And it is the illusion thereof. But if, if there's a, a desire, um, you know, talk with Gil and I'll see what I can do. Yes. Mike? Mike is the most popular guy in this room. <laughs> I, w I would really appreciate hearing your information on that because that brings up the whole idea of acceptance of, of everything. You know, I'm going to decide that this is it rather than let's wait and see or, you know, I mean, it brings up a whole lot of stuff. You're absolutely right. It yeah, does. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the stuff you may not really want to look at. Well, in case I have to, I want to look at it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, we've got 10 minutes left. Um, and so I'm going to switch to homework. Um, Who doesn't have the homework? Does anyone not have the Does five wishes handout the five or the homework? Five wishes. Yes. Five wishes is an arbitrary but actually very good document to help people um, examine what they want at end of life. It is actually a document that helps you examine what you want right now. The most important part of it is recognizing, one, this an advanced directive is not operative unless you can no longer speak for yourself. That's item one. one. Item number two is, it's the conversation that's important. In the, on the website, there's a, um, there's something called advanced care planning, um, conversation program that's at, uh, at the Coalition for Compassionate Care in California website. Um, having those conversations with the important people is, is important. But most important is choosing someone who would speak for you if you are unable to speak for yourself. Think about it. Are they going to make decisions for you? No. The only decision that is made is, will you, my surrogate, represent my decision? Sometimes in the face of opposition. So I invite people to look at the five wishes. You may already... How many people have advanced directives already prepared? When's the last time you looked at it? A year ago? Five years ago? I do it annually. My health hasn't changed, nothing's changed, but 
It's a good habit. How many people have spoken with their doctor directly about it? There's fewer hands up than... How many people have verified that that advanced directive is actually in that doctor's record and actually in the hospital record? Both. Well, there, there are hospitals nearby that if you're in an emergency, they're going to take you to the closest one. So um, it's not simple. And the, the article, Repealing Murphy's Law. Everybody knows what Murphy's Law is? Yeah. If something can go bad, it will. This is the truth about advanced directives. And so it offers suggestions on how to prevent Murphy from visiting. Um, this is real. I have seen suffering, not necessarily Buddhist suffering, but just the suffering of people put on a conveyor belt and they get what is there in the machine that stamps them out. I have seen silly mistakes of, well, it wasn't signed. Or um, it didn't exclude the person who was going to argue with me. By the way, if you have an advanced director, you could say, this person over here can't, make, can't be involved in decisions. You can change your advanced directives. I mean, this is not engraved in stone. Even if it's in ink, they have whiteout. Well, no, you just make a new one. So, all of the uh, homework is there for you. But in terms of the medical, what I will be speaking about, and the, the Heavenly Messenger's medical guide to dying, is basically how, as much as possible, to have your choices respected. And their ways of doing it. Yes. Um, so, if you um, have a spouse who you know couldn't carry out your wishes, can you appoint somebody else to do it, or legally would it always be the spouse? Answer that question yourself. Yeah. Of course, you can. Okay. <laughs> Good. And if there are, if you're um, both 90 years old, um, you may not wish to have your spouse. To also, it's important to talk with your spouse about that decision because when you can't speak for yourself and your surrogate, your surrogate really needs to have a relationship with the key people in your life. This all needs to be discussed ahead of time, and people need to be on, as much as possible on the same page. Trust me, it's the conversation much more important than the document. Other parts of the homework? There are no, yeah. so, so you can see here that there are some things at the top to reflect upon, write about if you feel so inclined. We're going to continue with the chanting, and we're going to close today with this chant together in a couple of minutes. But um, there's a suggestion for meditation if you have already a a way of contemplating death that's effective. You can go forward with that, really put some attention on that this week. 
or you can look at the, the traditional text of Satipatthana. There will be a document online that is a suggested contemplation. And um, you, you may want to create your own based on your own experience of death so far in your life. A way of following the Buddha's example of seeing someone else in that experience of death or after death, the body after death, and saying, this body here is also subject to that. So that's a different reflection than seeing yourself there decomposing. Just work with this in a way that helps you bring up the reality and the urgency. In Pali, it's Sangwega. You want to bring up the urgency for practice, the seriousness of what do I want to put in order before that happens? So when we reflect on what could, what would it be like if I died today, tonight? What would I want to do with this afternoon? What is it that's left undone? How would the different people in my life be affected? And that's part of those questions at the beginning. And uh, we, so we have a, we're going to have a number of readings. I don't think they're up there yet, but they will, will be t- today or tomorrow. So there will be a number of documents up there to read. Don't be afraid. They're all quite short. There will be a, a, a Heavenly Messenger's Spiritual Guide to Illness coming up there. So you have some things from the illness, kind of recapping or revisiting things we've talked about, and there will be other things that are preparing you for next week. And then bringing images for the shrine next time. Death and dying. Anything else you wanted to add? Oh, please pick up all your things from the shrine before you go today. We had a couple things left. There's a teacup that, does anybody know the teacup history? Please take your tea. We kept it in bubble wrap all week. <laughs> and, um, and we, we appreciate I know it's the fragility already broken, of everything. But, um, I don't know if you are as aware of what is happening in this group as we are. There is an organicity. This is becoming a living organism. And we are so grateful to be part of it with you. We thank, we, we thank you in both meanings of the word for your presence. So let's chant together. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise will become separated from me. I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abide supported by my kama. Whatever kama I shall do, 
for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Thus we should frequently recollect. So have a good week. May you have every good blessing. Usually I close by saying, stay well. But I'm not so sure I'm going to say that. Be with whatever it is. How about that? (laughs)